HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Two percent, two percent, two percent. Uh, the two percent's right over here. Oh, hey, Jenna. I didn't know you shopped here. Uh, yeah, anything to support local food, know what I mean? I definitely do. Though that's not the only thing you do in the name of Good Eats, obviously. Well, true. I also host Eating Matters every Wednesday at 5 p.m. where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. Be sure to tune in. All right, gotta get the plug in there, I get it. Yep, I'm hashtag shameless. You know what else you can do to support the local food community, right? Well, yeah. Make a donation to Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. That's right. And I gotta call you out on the whole local thing. What do you mean? Well, The Farm Report, A Taste of the Past, Japan Eats. Those are shows that take you around the country and the world. I'll give you that. So how can listeners give their support? It's pretty easy. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the big red heart in the top right corner. It's pretty easy from there. Thanks. Today's program was brought to you by Domain. Domain offers discreet and secure storage, transportation, trading, and advisory services to passionate fine wine collectors worldwide. For more information, visit domainstorage.com. I'm Damon Bolte, host of The Speakeasy. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Good morning. You're listening to In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. This is the show that brings you some of the most interesting personalities from the world of drinks, whether they are winemakers, brewers, distillers, sommeliers, bartenders, mixologists, and today a great author who has done many of those above uh, before in, in his life. He has been a chef, a restaurateur, a uh, sommelier, uh, and now an author. He's worked at some of the best restaurants in New York, including the sh- including Chanterelle. Um, we have Mr. Alan Tardy in the studio with us uh, talking about his new book, Champagne Uncorked. Welcome to In the Drink, Alan. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here. Um, and before we, we get started with Alan, I just want to let you know that we are uh, – Coming to you at 11 a.m. It's sort of our not not so newish time uh, every Wednesday here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can also find past episodes um, on on Heritage, and please do subscribe on iTunes where you'll get uh, our every week episode kind of 
uploaded instantaneously. I don't know how that happens, but it, it just does. It just works that way. Um, so today we are going to talk to Alan about his beautiful new book, uh, holding it in my hands right now, Champagne Uncorked, The House of Krug and the Timeless Allure of the World's most celebrated drink. Um, Alan, how did you come to write this book uh, about champagne? I should say, the book, it, uh, I mentioned this before the show, it's just a beautiful book. It's so well published. Uh, it feels nice in the hand, and it, it it's appropriate both to the quality of champagne and the quality of the writing as well that the book feels so nice to hold, and, and it, it's, you've done such a good job on it. Thanks, Joe. I can't take credit for the way the book feels. <laughs> And in fact, when I first got my copy, which was a few weeks ago of the finished book, I couldn't believe it. You know, I just held it in the cover. It feels soft and it feels plush and it feels dense, almost like a really great old wine. So I was I don't know how they did that. I have to say I didn't have anything to do with it personally, but I my hat's off to them. When did you first start? putting pen to paper i guess no one puts pen to paper anymore but start start writing this uh start writing the book um well let's see i first the the book uh is really based on the vintage of 2013 Mm -hmm. so it took me about a year or so to convince krug to to allow me into the house behind behind the doors into the tasting room into the cellars um, we went back and forth discussing this project that I sort of had in my mind and couldn't get it out of my mind for about a year until they finally said, yes, okay, the let's go. The access that you got was just amazing. Conversations that you're privy to, um, visiting growers, sitting in on blending and tasting Von Claire. How did you, how did you convince them? What did you say to them over the course of the year? It, it sounds like it took quite a bit of convincing in order to let you do this. Well, you know, uh, many wine producers, especially champagne producers, Mm -hmm. let's say, tend to be a little bit secretive when it comes to some things. And I think with with Krug, it was just a a matter of explaining to them, not even really convincing them, but explaining to them what I wanted to do, which is tell the story of of their making, of their kind of... uh, Benchmark for them, their most important wine, Grand Cuvée, which is a classic champagne in that it's a blend of different grape varieties from different vintages, different wines sourced from different places throughout the area. And uh, I think I think they just wanted to know what my intention was. And once I explained to them what it was, and they they just gave me the go ahead. And I have to say that I mean, in order to do this story, I really needed their complete cooperation to give me access to the entire all all the personnel all the different different the different stages of making the wine without that i couldn't have done it and and once you know once they agreed to do that it was like um it was like here here you are when i first went back to the krug winery to begin this whole process of the on the ground research which started late spring uh 2013 early summer visiting producer uh, suppliers in the vineyards with the chef to the first thing they did was was give me uh, a pair of security shoes which you need to wear in the winery for for as, as per regulations and uh, an actual door pass to use once I wow. entered went enter the winery through the security who, who knew where I who knew who I was it's like I had an actual uh, electronic key to, to, to get in so they were uh, and and that was 
you know, that was that, that's not even the most important important part. The most important part is really being able to spend time with the key people who were instrumental in creating this wine. And I spent a lot of time with the chef de cave, Eric Lebel. Uh, the first the first series of things that we did, which was really where it all begins, was visiting their their suppliers who are growers, um, in some cases also champagne producers, but all throughout Champagne. And Eric, you know, as the season is progressing, he spends hours and hours in the car. He racks up thousands of kilometers during the, you know, this kind of like tail end of the growing season, visiting their suppliers. It, it was interesting for me to read what that experience was like, uh, driving around with Eric and, and visiting, uh, these suppliers and, uh, how different each one of them was. You have the the biodynamic grower who's meditating in his vineyard, and then you have the guy who uh, who grows and has the the largest kind of equipment you could imagine that that covers I don't know you said four or six or eight levels of uh, rows of vines at one time can you know can work, and uh, the the supplier who's who they're buying actual actual juice from as opposed to just the the grapes, and that that kind of access seeing all of the different personalities was just so fascinating it's something that's a story that that i that i tell when i'm when i'm talking about champagne that you know that that some houses buy from many people but you don't i don't often think about what that actually means to buy from many people and what all their different personalities are like especially from krug which has such high standards right i mean i think we should we should say also that in in champagne it's very typical for the the actual makers of of wine the bottlers of champagne to to own little if any land at all historically speaking um they they most of them didn't own much land they were the manufacturers they were the people who acquired grapes or more often grape must the grape juice and then turned it into champagne um so krug is very typical of that they own about uh enough vineyard themselves, which they acquired in mostly in the 60s, the 1960s, to, to account for about 20 to 25% of their overall needs. But otherwise, they, like most other large producers, rely on suppliers to supply them with grapes. And <clears throat> that's really extremely important for them because their raw materials are the, the, the building blocks with which they use to make their wines for the most part. Mm -hmm. They do own some key properties like um, Tuclo, which are enclosed single parcel vineyards. Um, but those are, those are fairly recent acquisitions. And many of their relationships with their suppliers go back generations. And um, Krug does something very particular, which is for each of the parcels that they acquire from their suppliers, they, they don't just say to, to, some, to some supplier, give us uh, a certain amount of grape juice of Chardonnay grapes, for example, they they want to identify the specific plot or parcel from which the wines are coming from, which requires that a, a contract be done for those for those particular grapes that they're going to acquire. So it gets very complicated. Yeah, and uh, especially when you're dealing with so many suppliers, and it's a, a part of the the job of the chef de cave that I I had not realized that was his job to actually be doing the driving and visiting the suppliers working at doing the business side of it as well, saying this is, you know, it, it seems like they're, you're kind of privy to some business negotiations that were going on. Well, you know, I think in some ways, and this was sort of a surprise to me too, in some ways a chef to cave is like a chef to cuisine, like an executive chef who 
doesn't do just cooking. Many of them, as you know, don't do any cooking these days. They just kind of execute. But, um, but you know, the, the chef de cave is really responsible for many kind of business aspects of operating operating the winery. Now, I also think that in in Eric's case, I had the feeling that not only is it is it one of the one of his tasks, a part of the job, but it's something that he really enjoys. I mean, watching him interact with these different personalities mm-hmm. who are behind supplying them the grapes, either they're growers or they they assemble uh, lots of many small growers in their area. But each one of them has their own unique personality, and um, so I think I got the feeling that Eric enjoys that. That it's, that it's enjoyable for him, but I think it's also an important part of what Krug does because they, part of the personality is somehow in, in the grapes. So that, that plays a big part, I think, in the final product. Yeah, and I think we've gone a little bit ahead because I, I really do want to understand why did you choose Krug of all of the champagne houses, and there's so many out there. Uh, what, what was it about Krug that spoke to you that, that made you really want to dive into and write this book about that that one winery well i i think um the uh, one of the things that really caught my attention was this idea of creating uh, a blend or actually more it's better use the french word assemblage which is an assembly of many different wines different grape varieties different vintages from different areas within the champagne area which is a very ex- extensive region with, with huge differences between the north and the southern, the northern and southern parts, and I became really curious about well, how do you create a blend that that is not just a throwing together of different things to make a, a barely palatable palatable wine, but a real sort of uh, assembly in which the the sum is much more than the individual parts, and they all kind of fit together in a seamless sort of way. Many, many, many producers, the vast majority of producers in Champagne do that. Um, many of them do it quite well. But when it comes to, to this idea of blending, I mean, Krug is one of, the, uh, one of the most, I would say, prestigious. For them, the blend is what they're, what they're all about. Histori- and as I learned, historically, they always have been about the, this, this art of blending, mm-hmm. if, if you will. So the founder of the company, Joseph Krug, who created the winery in 1843, he was, he, was a ma- he was a master blender. And I think that was part of the fascination for, for him, too. At that time, all champagne was blended. Single variety, single vineyard champagnes didn't exist. Even vintage champagnes in 1843 didn't really exist. So it was really all about the blend. And, um, and Krug takes it takes it to an extreme, if you will. All of the, all of the grapes that they acquire, are they, they ferment in individual lots, and they keep them separate until the wines are actually used. Yeah. And, I mean, I've tasted Von Clair just a couple of times in my life. That's the, the still wine before it has gone through the second fermentation and uh, all of the years of aging. And it, it would be like tasting sea salt and imagining what a pot roast is going to... I, I can't imagine, you know, tasting a wine and really having that understanding. Uh, were you able to... And espe- I mean, that's especially because so Von Clair is uh, lo- very low alcohol, very, very high acidity. Um, and it, it is like a very raw material. 
I can't picture it. Were you able to, after tasting a few Von Clairs, start to understand where these could be kind of components of, of a larger part and, and picture it? You know, I'm sure you've tasted wines out of barrel, as I have before, and that is, it's a young wine, an unfinished wine, um, but I found it much easier to, to see what that wine would, or imagine in my life what that wine would taste like once it's finished mm. aging and gone and, and bottled than, than a Von Clair, which is, it blows my mind. It was uh, it was a very very different experience for me, and I I have been to many different many tastings before, um, and tasting Van Clare is really completely different because not only are they new new brand new wines, not only are they young, but um, they're not they're not really viewed as wines in and of themselves. They're wines, but um, they're they're really viewed more as pieces of a puzzle that are in some in, in, are going to be in some assembled in some way. And so when you're tasting them, what what the, the producers are looking for are what can they contribute to to an overall blend. And then there are other many, many other more logistic considerations that come in, but that's really the, the central thing. And I so for me, yes, at first I was I was thrown off in these in and being for, being inside the tasting room you know, not as like a show, but being part of this this process. First of all, for me, it was like being in the inner sanctum, mm-hmm. and I thought I was just going to be uh, a journalist and kind of sit back and observe and listen and take notes and stuff like that. But as you know, the first tasting as we were going around, and uh, the chef de cave Eric was taking um, people's impressions of the wine. There were uh, four people of the on the analogy team who were sitting in on this. After that, it, it came. It came to me, and I, I, I was like, I, I didn't think I was going to say anything at all. Um, but you know, I gave my response, and I actually, I, I did that from from there on. And it was really a process of having my palate adapt to the different sort of flavor, texture profile of these wines. But then, you know, day by day, piece by piece, having it sort of fit into a, a context that was totally new, totally new for me. Um, and then at the end, at the end of this process, which goes on for months, with first all the wines of the the different all the different lots of from 2013, and there were close to 200 different individual wines that they took in in 2013, and then going through the the still wines in the reserve cellar, which Krug also takes very very seriously. They have upwards of 100 different wines in the reserve cellar that go back up to 15 years. So then they, and all of those have to be tasted each year until, you know, little by little, the older ones are used up. So this is a very extended process. Um, but, you know, little by little, it started to fit into place how to think about the wines. Mm-hmm. But then you also have to imagine, okay, so once you create <laughs> the blend, even that's not the, the, that's not the final product because then you have to imagine as you're as you're thinking about creating this blend what's going to happen during after you make the blend but then there's still the second fermentation that is going to change right. the wine it's going to increase the alcohol a little bit it's introduce bubbles the yeast and all and then two years later and also two years of aging it's going to be aged well um yes the aging where where the the yeast dead yeast particles basically mm-hmm. remain in the wine um for champagne, it's a minimum of a year and a half for, for a champagne. For a vintage champagne, it's a minimum of three years. For Krug, it's seven years. For the, 
The Grand Cuvée? So. The Grand Cuvée is, is six years of That's aging crazy. on the lease in the cellar, plus an additional year after disgorgement. So they, they just have the wine sitting. And how many base, how many different wines will go into a bottle of Grand Cuvée, approximately? It sounds like we're talking about like 250 different wines. Uh, it, well, it usually, and, and actually now, the, Grand Cru, the, the wines of Krug have something very interesting. Um, there's a, an ID on each bottle. So you can actually look, if you have, if you have a bottle of, of Krug Champagne, you can look on the back and look up the ID, on, on, ID number online and see how many different wines were in it. But it's usually upwards of 150 to 175 it's different wines. It's incredible. And I do have a bottle of Krug Champagne, not here in the office uh, today, unfortunately, uh, but over at Altalinia. And anyone who is listening to this, uh, we have half bottles of the Grand Cuvée. We will give them to you for half price. Oh, my goodness. I'll it is a bargain. Uh, it's just for the listeners. Uh, mention the show. Uh, it is going to be, I think, a great deal. We have a bunch actually left over uh, from, from last year. And so I want to ask you about that. Give that some thought about aging non-vintage champagne. Uh, but before uh, hearing about that, we're going to take a quick break uh, from our sponsor, Domain. And this one is called Stroll by Soy. We'll be right back. Domain offers discreet and secure storage, transportation, trading, and advisory services to passionate fine wine collectors worldwide. Since 2003, they've focused on making collecting easier and more enjoyable. With over 1.5 million bottles in storage across five facilities, Domain is the largest network of wine storage warehouses in the country. Warehouses are located in Chicago, St. Louis, Metro New York, Napa, and Washington, D.C., with refrigerated shipment hubs in dozens of cities. Their service also extends to the home collector. In the last decade, the team has organized and inventoried more than 1.7 million bottles in home sellers across the globe. Recently, Domain has launched a marketplace where clients can buy and sell wine. Trading in the network ensures that wines are stored at Domain facilities and commissions are the lowest in the industry. Go to DomainStorage.com to complete an online questionnaire, and someone will get back to you within one business day. All right, we are back on In the Drink. I'm here with Alan Tardy, uh, the author of the new book, Champagne Uncorked. Uh, it is really fresh off the press. It's just a few weeks old. The House of Krug and the Timeless Allure of the World's most celebrated drink. Before our break, we were talking about, uh, I, I gave the offer to everyone here. If you're listening, please come into Altalinia. Half price, Krug, Grand Cuvée, half bottles. Uh, uh, and this is a, uh, a non-vintage wine that we have, uh, we have aged for a year because we have not, we have not sold it since, uh, since last year. Um, I do want to ask Alan your opinion on aging, uh, non-vintage wines. It's for long aging of your, uh, vintage wines you want to age for a long time. 
domain wine storage would be a perfect uh, option for that. They have great they have great storage, um, and so you don't have to worry about it. But how do you feel about aging non vintage wines? I mean, certainly Krug has been uh, this has been aged seven years before even it, it's released. Well, you know, that, that period before it's released is not really, or sh- actually shouldn't really be referred to as an aging period mm-hmm. per se. It's really more a key process of the, the, the making of the wine, which is the maturation period. And during that time, Krug, seven years is a long time. That's, that goes way beyond the minimum required uh, by the, the Champagne regulations. But what happens during that time is that the yeast particles, after the second fermentation in bottle, they're, they're still in there. They throw off a sediment, uh, which actually, ironically, has beneficial properties for the wine, both in terms of its mouthfeel, some of the flavor profile. That's what helps give it this kind of brioche, uh, toasty um, flavor and kind of a, a mouth coating, almost creaminess. It also helps preserve the wine. So all champagne has to undergo this, this period of maturation on the fine leaves, which is what gives, helps give the wine made for, the wine from champagne or any wine made in the champagne the method, which we can't call champagne method, but it's the, the classic method of second fermentation in the bottle, helps give it this ageability so that it can really evolve and, and grow, actually, and mature in the bottle with the passage of time. And in some cases, uh, a long, long, long amount of time. Um, there, you know, there, there are lots of stories about champagne that, that went down on ships in the, in the sea and uh, was brought up at some point. I think the, I mentioned one in the book. Um, it's about 170 years old. And it was still... I mean, okay, it lacked freshness, but it was still drinkable. drinkable. And sometimes they still have the bubbles. It could still, I mean, but of course, you know, if you think of it, the the seafloor is an ideal aging environment because it's cool, it's dark, and especially for sparkling wine, it's under pressure. Mm -hmm. So... We, and with the um, so it can have very very beneficial properties for it. Now, 107 years is a long time. I don't think any of us would want to have to wait that long to drink a bottle of champagne. But um, champagne does have an amazing capacity to evolve and and change and actually improve with time. Of course, you do need good storage for that to happen. Um, and you know the difference. You know, we we say now non-vintage versus vintage. Um, a vintage champagne means that all of the wine has to come from one particular year. A blend, a, a non-vintage champagne, it's almost a misnomer, especially in Krug's uh, case, because they don't really like the term non-vintage. It's actually uh, a conglomeration of numerous vintages. Usually, Do they prefer multi-vintage. Um, not that I'm either. not really sure. They're not even really happy with that terminology. I, I'm not. I'm not sure what what their <laughs> okay. their current thing is, but. Um, but it really, it's like it's a careful assembly of the majority of the wine is, mm-hmm. is from that particular year. So, in the case of, of the book that I followed, uh, 2013 based, and that usually accounts for about 60 percent, more or less, of the wine. And the, what the reserve wines do is give it a little bit, little bit more depth and complexity to it. So, in theory, they should be they should be capable of aging as long, if not even longer, than a vintage wine, which all comes from one particular year. 
interesting because it already has all of that different complexity from years aging and all that time in the leads. All right, well, then it's an extra good deal to get the have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, if it's already, if it's been, been sitting there for an additional year, then, I mean, theoretically, you should charge a little bit more rather than charging half instead. <laughs> but, but and that, I mean, the, the great thing about, about Champagne in particular, and I would even say most wine, there are some wines that are really just um, made to be drunk right away, as young and as fresh as possible. But most wines will benefit with a little bit of, of time in the bottle to evolve. And it doesn't mean that they, they get better mm-hmm. or worse. They just change their, their profile somewhat from being that sort of fresh and um, pronounced you know, kind of acidity. And they tend to calm down. Okay. I agree with that. I, I love wine that is... It has a little bit, at least a little bit of age to it. Um, I know we've been talking a lot about uh, about Krug, and uh, it is a, a truly unique, and that your access there has been amazing. But one of the things I really love about this book is the way that you seamlessly kind of go back and forth between your experience, your first person, first hand experience in Champagne at Krug, your access to all these great people, but then also you you interject uh, history. Geography, rules and regulations, uh, winemaking techniques, and just a, a ton of other information that isn't specific to Krug, but is about the Champagne region uh, and specific and winemaking as well. Uh, and I think you just did a fantastic job, kind of going back and forth. Like when you when you step away from I'm there, I'm in the cellar. I'm tasting with the group to this is what the rules in Champagne are, and then go back to it. It doesn't feel like you, you've, you've stepped away for too long. It's a, it's a really great uh, way that you've done that. Well, I'm really glad to hear you say that, Joe, because that was a big concern of mine. I knew I didn't want to do something really linear and have, like, you know, uh, the history of Champagne in the beginning and then the geology of Champagne. And then, you know, we want to we want to kind of cut right to the action. But um, I also realized once I, once I had decided to follow... Um, the sh- throughout the entire process of making a champagne, that you, I needed a context for that. Otherwise, it wasn't going to make any sense. So, um, and Krug, really, I mean, the book is, it's Krug is, the House of Krug is a case in point, it's, which I consider to be a door into the whole world of champagne. It's not a book that's only about Krug. Uh, it's, it's a book that's about champagne, and Krug is sort of, the, I think, the doorway that I took to get into it. And it seems like you must have done a ton of research. I mean, you, you, not that it's easy, but the stuff that you're experiencing firsthand, you can you can write down and then convey your experiences. But the kind of information that you're that you're giving here, it seems like you must have done a ton of research. How do you approach that? I, I did do a ton of research, um, and most of the research, historical research that I did, I mean, I certainly did not set out to write a book about history. And I don't think that that's really necessarily what this is. But I also realized that I needed – I was curious by a lot of these things. So, like, when we were visiting the, the suppliers, you know, that, that I was – I did a lot of research afterwards on the whole – this whole dynamic between the growers, the farmers of Champagne, who are the ones who have historically supplied the grapes, and the bottlers who are the ones that fabricated it. So there's a whole story behind that. And, and I also and, and like a million other things, how did the method actually – develop it didn't happen overnight it took, it was a process and i mean how the the, the second the, the champagne method evolved is fascinating story so i i just found myself being really captivated doing this historical research almost as much as i was on the ground in 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 champagne it was a different experience certainly but 
uh, it was really interesting, and it informed my whole experience that I had while I was there. Yeah, I think it would be helpful for people to understand, too, that, that history of, of champagne and how we've come to appreciate it the way that we do today. Uh, I, I loved your tidbits about who who preferred the historic brands who liked Moet Napoleon liked Moet right and the czars of Russia liked Vovclicot and that's just interesting and what are the reasons why they they preferred those things and of course history how did champagne become what it is and uh, you, you dispel the the myth that sometimes people say that Dom Perignon had invented it uh, and how you talk about how he improved quality uh, what would you if you were to to historically kind of think about the most important things to happen to create champagne, maybe like the four or five most important things to create champagne as, as it is today, going back, what, what would those, those things be? Well, I mean, one of the, I, I would say that the, the real beginning of champagne as we know it was when people finally decided to accept the, the bubbles mm-hmm. that occurred by a, a sort of spontaneous, unplanned second fermentation of the bottle. Instead of trying to get rid of them, as Dom Perignon and many other people worked very hard to try to eliminate the bubbles because it was considered a flaw for a wine to just sort of spontaneously undergo a second fermentation that would make it bubbly was not viewed very favorably. And at a certain point, people kind of turned the corner and said, hey, you know what? I kind of like the bubbles. Mm-hmm. not so bad. So that was really key. But then once they started to try to induce the second fermentation rather than avoid it, then there were other problems about, well, okay, so you induce a second fermentation by adding a little bit of sugar and yeast to the wine that then creates the second fermentation in a closed container. But how much sugar do you add? Uh, and, what, and, and the container itself, that, uh, you know, the, there was, um, they had to develop techniques of blowing thicker glass to, to, to withstand the pressure of the second fermentation because up, up to a certain point, people were making sparkling champagne, but the bottles were exploding all over the place, in some cases upwards of 50%. So that was, another, that was another key thing. And then I would say one of the, one of the, the key things that really um, is sort of the, the, at the center of the book is in, Cham- in the Champagne area, which is a northern growing area, people started blending different grape varieties from different parts of the zone in order to make a wine that was barely palatable. Just, and they kind of hedged their bets sourcing grapes in different part, areas because it happened all the time. It was entirely possible that one particular area would be wiped out by hail or some other, some other kind of act of God or disease or something like that. So they started blending to make a decent wine. But then at a certain point, once the, the, the kinks in the method of, of making this, this wine were worked out, and people also figured develop more sophisticated techniques of working in the vineyards. That wasn't so much of a problem anymore. And then it, it became possible to imagine creating an assembly of all these different wines, not not out of necessity, but by choice, to make a more beautiful, more exceptional wine. And that's and that's what what we love about champagne now. It's not just the bubbly nature of it, and that's perfectly fine. But there are many champagnes that go beyond that. 
and have an incredible capacity to age and develop and bring together all of these different factors. The, the, the sheer amount of work, even amongst the largest producers of champagne, really is, of, of human work is uh, is amazing. Uh, and it's it's one of the things that you really appreciate about uh, about it. And you, you learn that happens at a top producer like Krug uh, through your book. Um, I do want to ask you uh, two questions, things that, that come up frequently on, on this show. Um, sustainability in, in, uh, in wine. I know that Krug uh, visits a, uh, or Eric visits uh, a, a biodynamic grower that, that he's working with. What were your feelings about the, uh, the embracing of organic and biodynamic viticulture? Um, Champagne's been a, a place where they've kind of notoriously been not so friendly to their soil. Uh, that's true. And that there's been an amazing transition in the in the in the region in the past I would say ten to fifteen years. Champagne there's because there's been this this big demand worldwide for for the product, it's been an uh, intensive viticultural viticultural area. Uh, p- production levels were quite high. In order to get the high production level, people were using all kinds of chemicals and even trucking in um, waste, organic waste from Paris to use as fertilizer because the, the, the ground there is very poor. So it was, as you said, notorious for being uh, an, an ecological, not I wouldn't say hazard, that's a little bit too strong, but not very friendly. It was more about let's get the grapes out and we can always sort of manipulate them in the winery. But it's really done a huge about face. Now the whole area, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a, a mandate from the CIVC, which is the organization of producers that manages the whole appellation, to, to be environmentally, environmentally sustainable. So as an area, there are very strict standards of um, in, environmental practices. Um, more and more, so there's environmentally sustainable vineyards is a big thing there. There are there are many producers who are also exploring um, what we would call organic viticulture. They call it uh, biologique, or also biodynamic producers. So I mean, it took them a while to get there, but now once once they've really embraced that, that I would say is I encountered it is a is a priority among most growers and also producers. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's really reassuring and good and good to hear. And certainly, uh, a lot of the growers that uh, I, I'm dealing with and that we list on our, our wine list recently have that as as a mindset. But I always figured that was the, the really the kind of the exception. The rule was uh, that most people don't. But it sounds like it, it's really sort of changing and going towards that. I think I know. I think it definitely is. And I think also most producers, even many of the the really big. Bottlers who realize that you can have you can have it you can have both you can have both ways you can have good quality grapes in the amount that you need them and be environmentally sustainable at the same time. And how does so you describe Krug as being the smallest of the big guys or smallest of the of the big houses? How do they uh, think of the grower producers? Had, what, what was the the feeling that you got? Were they were they open to this idea or were they intimidated by some of these growers who are who are receiving all these accolades? Um, I, I think it's also, it would be interesting to turn that around and say, how do the growers, the farmers who supply Krug, think about them? Mm-hmm. And I have to say that um, virtually all of the small farmers who are also wine, many of them are wine producers, they have their own labels now, were extremely proud to, to, be, to supply Krug because they, um, first of all, it's a very prestigious house. Uh, 
But they, but one of the things that Krug does, as I mentioned before, keeping all of the individual plots separate means that, and, and wines that come from the plots separate throughout the entire process, means that their suppliers can actually come to the winery after fermentation is finished and taste their Vin Claire and see how their wines taste. And then those wines are being used in the composition of this Grand Cuvée. So it makes them extremely proud. They can actually see, you know, taste their wine on its own, which most suppliers in Champagne don't, unless, unless, unless they're grower or producers, don't have an opportunity to do. So, um, and, and on the other hand, Krug cherishes their relationships with, with their suppliers. And in some cases, they've been going on for generations, three or, two or three generations. And there's this, there's this first this first person contact. I think getting back to Eric's visiting the suppliers. That's also important to not just to him personally, but but to these relationships that's how too. How to make the business. All right. Um, thank you so much. It's been Alan Tardy. His book is Champagne Uncorked: The House of Krug and the Timeless Allure of the World's Most Celebrated Drink. I highly, highly recommend reading this book. It is fascinating, not just about the story of Krug, but some truly great, really well-researched information on how champagne is actually made. Thank you, Alan, so much for, for being a guest. Thank you, Joe. Joe, it's a pre- pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great. And thank you uh, so much to uh, our engineer, David, and the entire team here at Heritage. Uh, this has been In the Drink on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 